Beloved of the Lord, hear God's very word to you, his people. I'm going to read 1 through 6 today. We're going to be focusing on verse 4, but I wanted to give it some context. So here, Paul's letter to the Ephesians, verses 1 through 6. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. According as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Let's pray. Father, oh, how we delight in your word. We pray this morning in faith that you will bless the reading and the hearing and the preaching of your word. Lord, we pray that you will use your spirit and you will use your word and you will change us, that you will use this word to conform us more and more into the image of your dear son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So Marion left you standing there, and I didn't want to have you sit down and stand up and turn it into an exercise class, but there was a few things that I did want to tell you this morning before we got started. One is I bring greetings from the children of captivity, um, the state of Illinois. We are beginning to call it Babylon these days. Um, I sincerely desire your prayers for our state. For those who may not know, we had a week here not too long ago. We heard that the new abortion bill passed. We are the most abortion-friendly state in the country. A few days after that, we heard that the only abortion mill in our town stopped doing surgical abortions and they were going to close their doors. A few days after that, we gathered on the sidewalk in front of that abortion mill and we sang songs. We sang victory songs. And then a few days after that, our governor signed the abortion bill into law. So you can pray for those who live in Illinois. Um, God's judgment will surely fall on us as the ground cries out with the blood of the innocent. The other thing that I wanted to mention to you before we really get started here is I want you to know that, am I required to stay on this mic? No. I want you to know that God is indeed good. 
Somebody should say amen. amen. As I was sitting here during prayer earlier, I was thinking back to a time when we would visit Heritage Church and we would meet in the storefronts down on the square. Some of you remember that, but only a few of you remember that. What I want you to know is that during that time, we prayed for you. We prayed that you would come. And as I look around, it is, it is amazing to me to see how many faces there are here. Some of you I know, some of you I've interacted with a lot, some of you I don't think I've met. And that is amazing to me that those years ago, and it's been how long, Marion? 15, 14, 13 years? It's been a long time. But God is faithful. And God hears your prayers. And he answers them. And you are the very proof of that promise. Amen? Amen. All right. So, according as he has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Now, I guess another little side story here is this may come as a great surprise to you, but yesterday afternoon, Mary and I were sitting around and we were talking about liturgies and we were talking about church buildings, right? Imagine that. But he made a comment, and I wasn't really sure if he was speaking in general or if he was speaking to me specifically, because whether I like it or not, I am a Yankee, and we talk fast. And Marion was saying one of the problems with most liturgies and most liturgists is they talk too fast. So I think I'm going to have to ask you to forgive me, because when I get going, I'm going to talk fast, and I'm sorry, I can't help it. Where I come from, we talk fast so we can stay warm. <laughs> Laura, can I get an amen? Or not? So, as we approach this verse, we're going to focus on verse 4, but we really need to set it up with verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. That alone is amazing. We have been blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. Now, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but this is, this is one of those wow moments. Those who are the faithful in Christ Jesus, I'm thinking of you right now, those who are the faithful in Christ Jesus possess, you currently have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. You and I as those who are in Christ, we are co-heirs, we possess and share in all that the Father has given His beloved Son. We are even seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. 
This is a great gospel truth. I could get myself in trouble here, but if I were king for a day, when we read something like this or when we heard this in our ears, there would be shouts of joy and there would be singing and there would be dancing and there would be clapping. But Marion's here, so I won't ask you to do that. <laughs> but I am afraid sometimes we Presbyterians are a little dry when it comes to this. When we can hear something like, you possess all spiritual blessings, all spiritual blessings, so which blessings do you lack? None. But we, we hear this, that in Christ we possess everything that He has. And we respond like this. Right? All right. But the point here is that verse 4 that we're going to look at is actually the source or the foundation of those blessings that we possess, of that being in Christ. So we're going to try to go through this and we're going to try to hit the highlights and lay it out here a little bit, but then there's towards the end, there's really a couple points that I want to make that I'm, I'm hoping those are really the ones that you take home, okay? So we see here that in verse 4, you and I, this is how we come to possess the blessings that are mentioned in verse 4. And this is the stuff of deep, profound, supernatural mystery. The Lord has graciously revealed this mystery to us. And this is the very origins of the gospel story. This is where it first takes place. And it starts, it all starts in a time and a place that actually defies and denies our understanding of time and place. Even the words given to us are a little hard to process. I mean, Paul tells us that before the foundation of the world, before God had even created time, there was an event that took place. And you and I, with our finite minds, are now trying to imagine, we're trying to plot on a timeline, where is that? So, if you're looking at it this way, is it over here? Time starts here and goes this way, and was it over here? Or is it up here? I mean, we can't even account for before time began because we are bound in time, right? But let's not get too bogged down there. Let's just go with the idea that before the beginning, all right? I love all these time words and how they kind of are in tension with each other. But before the beginning, before God had created anything that was made, the Holy Trinity, the covenant-keeping, faithful God, according to His 
almighty power, according to His unsearchable wisdom, and according to His infinite goodness, chose us in Christ. Thank you. Now as we try to process through this, because of, well, because of a lot of things, but primarily because of our pride, our minds begin to focus on how we participate in this process. And I do believe that Paul is trying to explain to us how we are in this process, okay? So I'm not denying that. But we begin to think like, what is it that would cause God to choose us? Is it, is it the way we live? Is it, is it us making the right decision? What is it that God can see in us, in our thoughts, in our actions, that would cause Him to do such a thing? And there are great theological and philosophical systems that are built to try and account for why God would choose us. And man has a tendency, I didn't need the cap anyway, and man has a tendency to see ourselves as the starring role in this story. Yeah, I mean, we know that God helps us in this process, but God sure does a good job of being able to see and to determine that we are going to show ourselves to be His people. But maybe, maybe, we are missing Paul's point. Maybe we are missing what he is trying to communicate to us at the beginning of this letter. And I think it is somewhat reasonable for us to miss the point. Paul does talk about us a lot in this first chapter. We are mentioned many, many times. But the main focus, as you probably know, is not us. The main focus of this letter in this opening is not you and it's not me. But it is actually God's nature. You see, it's His goodness and His mercy and His grace. It is God's love. It is Jesus that is center stage. I mean, John tells us that God is love. It is, it is His nature that defines Him. It is His nature, it, it's how we understand Him. It's this love that He has for us that drives Him to make covenant with us. And He makes covenant with us in and through His Son. And we often talk about this great covenantal love that God extends to us, and that's good. How He condescends to interact with us through covenant so that we can understand. It is true and right. 
But again, I think we tend to miss the point. I mean, we tend to forget that one of the main reasons God is telling this story to us is why. So I'm, I'm going to change gears on you a little bit, but I'm going to try to explain this. In the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 7, it says this. The first covenant made with man was a covenant of works, wherein life was promised to Adam and to all his posterity upon condition of perfect and personal obedience. We all know how that story turned out, right? So then the confession goes on to say that man, by his fall, having made himself incapable of life by that covenant, the Lord was pleased to make a second commonly called the covenant of grace, wherein he freely offers unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in Him, that they may be saved, and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto eternal life His Holy Spirit, to make them, I love that, to make them willing and able to believe. You see, this all takes place in Christ. Life and salvation to sinners by Jesus Christ, obtained by faith in Him. And we know how we get this faith, right? It's because we are given the Holy Spirit and we are made to believe. The faith, in Ephesians tells us, is a gift of God. So even the ability to believe in Jesus is showing us God's nature, His goodness, and His love for us. And we need to understand that this is, this is even, even maybe bigger than we're imagining. Because as we are on the glory side of that gift of faith, this gift of faith that flows from Jesus, everything, every spiritual blessing comes from Jesus. Faith in, his, faith in Jesus is because of His faith and faithfulness. We are adopted as children because He is the faithful Son. You and I inherit the earth because we are joint heirs with Christ. We are holy because the faithful Son is holy. We are blameless because the faithful Son is holy. Blameless. But we'll get to that a little later. You see, we are the called and chosen and faithful because Jesus is the called and chosen and faithful. And we, by faith, are in Him. Now in the Westminster Confession, it goes on to tell us in chapter 8, that it pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose 
and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man. To be the prophet and the priest and the king and the head and savior of his church. The heir of all things and judge of the world unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed. To be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. That is amazing. One of the things I don't think we quite understand is that, you know, we understand that covenant is kind of like a contract, right? Well, I have to um, you know, one side maintains his side of the covenant and the other side has to maintain their side of the covenant or the contract. God understands this. And he understood that we weren't going to be able to uphold our side of the contract because of the fall. We were not going to be able to obey Jesus and all that he commanded. So God, before time began, has Jesus fulfill both sides of the covenant. Nobody ever makes a contract and says they'll uphold both sides of the contract. They pay on both sides and never cash it in. Who does this, right? But as we think about this story, as we think about this covenant being made, it's, it's this ancient promise, which is funny, there's another time word, right? Ancient promise of a promise that was decreed before time began, right? But yet there is a current fulfillment of that promise that we can see, all right? And as we roll through this, I want to try to hit some of the, just the high points. I won't read all of the passages, but I want to talk about this promised people to Jesus. And, and it, in, in the confession, it even calls us um, his seed. And you can't think of these kind of words being blessed, um, the seed, without thinking about the stories in Genesis of God coming, cut, cutting covenant with his people, right? Let's start in Genesis chapter 3. And it says, and the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, dust shalt thou eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity, or I'll put war, between you and the woman, between your seed, seed of the snake, and her seed, seed of the woman. And it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. We no sooner get through the fall than we have a promise that God is going to bring about and bless the seed of the woman. There is a promise made to us in story so that we can understand it. Because 
Maybe you guys aren't struggling with this, but in my feeble head, this idea of this covenant being made before time began is hard for me to get my brain wrapped around. But the story goes on. Genesis 12, we have God promising uh, to Abram that he is going to be the father of many nations. The father of many nations. Abram, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. It means the father of many nations. No, no, no. I understand that you don't have any children. But you are going to be the father of many nations nations and I will bless them and they shall be a blessing to all the families of the earth right Genesis 17 as for me behold my covenant is with you and thou shall be a father of many nations and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed for an everlasting covenant and I will be your God and I will be the God of your children and then we read from Deuteronomy 7 earlier where it talks about God choosing out a people because he loved them because not because of anything that they had done but because he loved them And that he had promised to choose them, to call them out, to bless them. And so as we try to understand how this covenant flows down through history, with our New Testament understanding, we can look back and it begins to make a little more sense. I mean, Peter tells us that that we are um, redeemed by the precious blood of Christ, as a lamb without blemish and without spot, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was made known to us in these last times. Again, repeating the idea that in Christ, This covenant remains because God is faithful to His covenant. And He's faithful to His covenant people. And He provided a way to be washed in the blood of the Lamb so that we could be like Jesus without blemish and without spot. This is the promise. And in Galatians chapter 3, we begin to understand that when God promised Abraham that he would bless his seed and that all the families of the earth would be blessed through your seed. Again, we pridefully sometimes think he's talking about us. And there is a promise there for us, but ultimately he's talking about Jesus. That Jesus would be that seed. That he would come and he would fulfill the promise. He would make a way to lead his people out of captivity. Hallelujah. For those of us who live in captivity, this is becoming a reality. We begin to understand what it's like to live in bondage. But how does this work out? 
I mean, wait a minute. Before time began, God declared that you and I would be in Christ. That all that comes from and all that comes with being in Christ, that we would possess that. It says that all of history has been ordained by God every moment. All of history has led up to this moment right here in this place right here that you would be there and that I would be here and that I would read this passage and that you would hear it and it would be repeated to you once again this morning. I think it is hard for us to understand just how much control it takes for God to be sovereign over his providence like that. The human mind doesn't understand how it can work out all those details. Okay, so I'll tell, I'll tell some weaknesses of my own, right? So I get assigned to go to Costco. Anybody ever go to Costco? All right. You ever roll up to the gas pump? So I have, I have a list of things I'm supposed to get, right? But of course, the van needs gas. So you roll up to the gas pump. These are my plans, right? I have this all planned out. I know how this is going to go. I roll up to the gas pump, right? I walk over to it, and I pull out my wallet, and I have my debit card, and my son Levi has my Costco card, right? So I have to go back home. It's not very far. I have to go back home. I have to retrieve my Costco card. I have to go back and get gas, right? And then I go in Costco. And the thing that Kim wants me to pick up, for those Costco shoppers, you're going to know this one, right? The thing that we've been buying there forever that we love, they don't have, right? So now I have to call Kim on the phone and I have to say, they don't have the thing that you want. What do you want in its place? I don't know what do they have. Well, it's Costco. They have everything, right? But this is, how, this is how we plan stuff, and we think we're good. You know, we might even use Google Maps to say, hey, there's a traffic jam ahead of us, and we can get routed around it, and we think that's pretty slick, right? And that is pretty slick. But this is how we view planning and how we would providentially take care of things. But this isn't how God works. See, we tend to think that God is like a really, really, really good Tetris player. Okay? So for some of you little kids that don't know what Tetris is, ask your folks. They know what it is. So we think that God can see the boxes coming from a long ways off, right? And that he can grab them and he can turn them and he's really fast and he lays them in perfect lines, high score every time. Right? But it's not like that at all. It's not like that at all. See, what, what this really looks like is that, oh boy, <laughs> that God 
takes some dirt, all right, and he handcrafts a man and he breathes life into him. And then he controls all of history so that this man eventually gets to the point where he can design a computer. And then somebody comes along and says, hey, we need a game that like mimics, oh, you know, the, the toddler game where you put the blocks in the little thing? We need a game like that for smart adults to play so they can waste time. But wait a minute, did, did you say that God fashioned man out of dirt? That's a pretty good trick, right? Where did he get the dirt? He spoke it into existence. See, this is, this is a level of power and control and wisdom and goodness and all those attributes we love about God that we just don't even understand. So God in His providence, He works all of this out, right? So today, you can come to Heritage Church and you can hear some guy from Illinois tell you that you should be holy and without blame before Him in love. You should be, that's what it says. That means that you should occupy this position or this place. It is God declaring to you that you are holy and without blame. This one is also hard for us to understand because we, we know ourselves, right? And, and, and we know that that's just really not us, that we aren't holy and without blame. There's a funny Spurgeon line. I'm not sure how theologically accurate it is, so Spurgeon's pretty solid. But he once said that he is glad God chose him before he was born, because he sure wouldn't have afterwards, right? And we can all relate to this, right? That's exactly the point here. But Paul says this many, many times. He reminds us over and over and over again. In Philippians, he says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke. In Colossians, he says to uh, present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable. And in Thessalonians, he says, to the end, that he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all the saints. 
Now, Marion and I talked about this as well last night, and he is way smarter than me, and he was able to explain it to me in a way that I could understand. And I'm not trying to be funny. It was a great conversation. But there is this concept that before time began, you were declared holy and blameless. And then there came a point in a time where you were visibly declared holy and blameless. We Presbyterians like to call that baptism, right? And then, as these passages suggest, we have been declared holy and blameless. We have been given the status in time of holy and blameless so that God could eventually one day glorify us, right? Holy and blameless. This is all very interesting, this, this, this three-prong status, right? But the first one still hurts my head, okay? So I'm a little more of a time and place kind of guy, so I like to explain it like this. The one, when you are declared holy and blameless, that is what we call justification. You have been justified. You have been made righteous in God's eyes. How? Because you are hidden in Christ. Right? Everybody understands that? And then the process of us walking out our life holy and blameless, that's called sanctification. Right? And both of these, the catechisms will tell you, are an act of grace on God's behalf. And it, the, the scriptures encourage us over and over again that you have this status, that you have been, past tense, redeemed, that you are justified, current reality, and that you are being sanctified, that Jesus is going to complete that work in you that he has begun. Hallelujah. I don't know about you, I am really looking forward to the day where my sin will stop tripping me up. Though, like most of you, I love my sin, right? And I hate my sin. I usually hate my sin after I've been loving my sin. That's how that works. So, you have been declared holy and blameless. And you are to live and to walk holy and blameless. And as I was saying... I think this is a little hard for us to really get a grasp on. Some of you are more intellectual than I am, so you can probably handle these kind of concepts. But I am really thankful to the Lord that He gave us some stories that we could relate to, to explain this to us. But also, He gave us real, tangible reminders here so we could see it, so we could touch it, so we could taste it. So we could hear it. And we call these sacraments, right? We call these sacraments. All right, where do we start? I 
I think God does this for all of our benefit, all right? Because even the smartest among us is not as smart as we think we are, or as smart as we think they are. And we need to be reminded, God knows our frame. Remember, he knows what he made us out of. He knows that we are frail. He knows that we are clay jars, right? And clay jars are known for breaking. You ever seen an archaeological dig? They're covered with broken clay jars. That's what they dig up, broken clay jars, fragments all over the place. He knows we're frail. He knows our minds are tainted with sin and that our memory is not good and we forget. Anybody here struggle with forgetting? Oh, there's more of you than that. He does this because he knows that our faith is weak. He gives us the sacraments to encourage us and to strengthen us and to increase our faith. I want to illustrate baptism to you. Um, I can read from the confession. I can tell you all the things that it says. It says that it's for the admission of the party baptized into the visible church to be unto him a sign and a seal of the covenant of grace, of his engrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sin, of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. See, there's that thing. There's that declaration that you are this, and it's going to help you walk. One of my favorite pictures in all of Scripture, interestingly enough, is not in Ephesians. I, I confess, if it's okay to have a favorite book, Ephesians is my favorite book. But there's this story over in John. John's probably my second favorite book. But there's this story over in John in chapter 13. We all know it well. People teach from it all the time. But it starts out by saying that um, God had given Jesus his followers and that Jesus had loved them as his own to the end. And Jesus here washes the disciples' feet. But that doesn't come anywhere close to describing what's going on here, does it? See, Jesus, as the groom, is washing the bride's feet. He is washing his bride in the water of the Word. See, I did get it over to Ephesians, didn't I? That is a beautiful picture. He is making a declaration to them. He is saying, this is who you are. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he was come from God and went to God, he rose from supper, he laid aside his garments, he took a towel 
and he girded himself. And after that, he poured water into a basin. And he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that he was girded with. This picture, (laughs) the creator of heaven and earth, the creator of time, the Lord of glory intervenes on man's behalf. He sees that we have a problem. As Michael Card would say, eternity stepped into time. And he kneels before his handcrafted crowning jewel of creation. This dirt that he has created is covered in the dirt of death. He has collected his wages. He has the dust of the serpent on him. He has the dirt of the world. And Jesus condescends to wash him, to wash them clean. As the word, he washes them clean with his precious blood. He is declaring them to be holy. You are now clean. He is reminding them that they are to be holy. I think it's the most difficult word for us as humans to understand. I'm not talking about the word holy. I'm talking about the word be. It is hard for us to be. We're much more comfortable doing. Jesus tells them that they are clean, that they are holy, and that they are to go out and they are to love others as He loves them. He identifies His followers. He declares them holy. He lives a life of grace right in front of them, and He calls them to do the same. This is a, in my opinion, a beautiful picture of baptism. This is what it looks like. In time, declared, redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, glorified, those promises all go together. And our confession is very comfortable telling us that when we are baptized, that we possess all spiritual blessings. But then what does this lead to? 
What does this baptism lead to? And you know, every week, every time in your order of worship, I really appreciate this about your order of worship, because sometimes we as men, we forget to say it. But as we are fencing the table, it says right here that you need to be baptized to participate in communion. You need to be visibly part of the church to come to this table. And at this table, so there are those, there are those who are critical of the Westminster Confession and the catechisms. And they say they're dry and they're academic. I much prefer the Heidelberg. Heidelberg's great. I love the Heidelberg. But I want you to hear this. This is from the larger catechism. This is the simple question. What is the Lord's Supper? What is this right here in front of me and right here in front of you? It tells us that the Lord's Supper is a sacrament of the New Testament, wherein by giving and receiving bread and wine according to the appointment of Jesus. Again, everything is according to Jesus. What happens? His death is showed forth. And they that worthily communicate feed upon His body and His blood. And what flows from that? To their spiritual nourishment and growth and grace. I don't know about you, but I desperately need spiritual nourishment and growth in grace. It says that they have their union and communion with Him confirmed. When you come to this table, your union with Christ is confirmed in you. And it testifies and renews our thankfulness. It allows us to come and say, thank you, Lord. We come with empty hands, right? We, we, we come asking like beggars for bread and for wine. Please, Lord. It confirms our engagement to be, to be God's. It tells us that you are really and truly betrothed. You are really and truly the bride. And it says that it confirms our mutual love and fellowship with one another. And that we are members of that same mystical body. See, even the Westminster divines, as good as they are, they still have to introduce this word mystery. This is beyond us. It is supernatural. There's a phrase that you know, the modern church likes to use, but it's, it's really true. It's a God thing. And we don't always get it. So I want to run this by you again. Communion is for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of Himself in His death. That was for you. 
It is the sealing of all benefits to true believers. It is for your spiritual nourishment and growth in Him. For your further engagement in and to all duties which you owe unto Him. It strengthens you and it allows you to walk in holiness and to be blameless. It, it gives you the strength to do those duties that you are called to do. And it is a bond and a pledge that you are in Christ. Now, I don't know about you, but when I begin to feel down, when I'm having a tough day or I'm getting depressed, I can go <laughs> to the Westminster Confession and I can go to the catechisms and I can read about communion. And it is grace to my soul. And it helps me understand as a simpleton that when I come to this table, that it is doing two things. It is making a declaration about me. It tells me who I am, that I am holy and blameless in Christ. And it feeds me. And it strengthens me. And it, is, it encourages me so that I can go out and try to do the Father's will. That I can try to disciple all nations. I struggle to disciple my children, but I'm called to disciple nations. I need the extra strength. So of course, what is it that I want you to come away with today? It is that very phrase. It is the title of the sermon that's printed in your order of worship there. I want you to understand that you are holy. You're set apart. You are God's. And when He sees you, He does not see your sin anymore. Do we believe that? It says that He takes our sin as far as the east is from the west. You guys all know that you can't ever stop going east or west. He didn't say north and south where we can map those locations. He said He removes our sin that far, infinitely far away from us. And I want you to know that there is a call that you are instructed as a Christian, as a Christ follower, you who are faithful in Christ, that you are called to walk worthy of that calling. That you are not to flirt with the, the world of darkness. You are to live in the fruits of the Spirit. That's where we, that's where we operate. According as He has chosen us in Him. Wow. He has chosen us in Him before the foundation of the world. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Let's pray. Father, we are blessed by Your Word this morning. We can see the ancient promise 
we can see the current reality of that promise that we have received it by faith in Jesus Christ, that we have been baptized, that we have been set apart, that we have been made new creations. Lord, we have also seen that you have declared us holy, you've declared us blameless, and through that declaration you invite us to your table, you promise to feed us, you promise to give us eternal life through this meal. Lord, we believe and we ask that you will help us in our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.